now it's all about the coronavirus, which is awful, awful, awful. Uh, but the opioid crisis is still going on. And with the opioid crisis, it's about 170 people, I think, so far. Excuse me, 170 people die in the U.S. alone every day from the opioid ec- epidemic. With alcoholism, it's about 242 every single day that die from the alcohol epidemic. So people are dying every single day in this country. Again, 240 plus from alcohol every day, 170 plus from opiates every day. So how does it affect me? Gosh, I can't save all those people. But Because when I see those numbers, I don't think of big numbers. I think of my brother, Jeff, my best, my best friend, Jerry. You are listening to The Relators Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders, harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message was from Mitch Prager, the founder and CEO of Soberman's Estate, who wants to let you all know that people are not just numbers. The opioid crisis is still going on and how to help people in a time of need. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for the real Mitch Prager. Enjoy. And we will get started here. Here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Mitch Prager, the founder and CEO of Soberman's Estate. Mitch, thanks for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Well, of course. And, you know, interesting times right now, Mitch. You and I were just talking before the show. Uh, you know, mental health is increasingly becoming more important and more important. People are un- unsure or uncertain about their financial future. Uh, they're getting used to and adjusting living at home now. Um, people are dealing with hard times right now. So, Mitch, the first question for you is, where were you prior to Soberman's estate, both personally and financially? Good question, Kevin. Okay, so where was I both personally and professionally before Soberman's estate? Well, I, I was born in New Jersey, moved to Arizona in 1979. Um, professionally, my first profession was actually as a magician all through my teens. And, oh, really? Yeah, and all through my 20s. I did, I did magic. Um, actually lived in Las Vegas in my 20s and performed there. And then I went to hotel school at UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas for hotel school. And became a hotel manager and ended up being a general manager of a hotel here in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, had 180 employees when I was 29 years old managing a big hotel. So hotel management was my career for quite a while. And then... Um, in 1997, started an executive search recruiting firm. And um, so I did executive search recruiting um, for about 20 years also. And um, so combining those skills of uh, doing executive search recruiting and hotel management, um, and I can tell you about personally too, yes, where I was emotionally. Well, emotionally, um, I, well, I'll share with you, Kevin, that my sobriety date is May 25th, 1998. So uh, this coming May, God willing, we'll be 22 years sober. Nice. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's one day at a time it's and tough. a lot of help. And um, so I have a background in recovering. So for 20 plus years, I've been helping men recover from alcoholism and, and addictions. And so that's been like a personal passion of mine. Hmm. So combining that personal passion for recovery um, about 10 years ago, well, yeah, almost exactly 10 years ago. Um, it was in 2010, my older brother, Jeff, passed away from an accidental opioid overdose. 
And um, at that time, he did not want to go to a, a large treatment center. And um, so I was, I was worried about him. Every time I saw him, I say, Jeff, you're, you're drinking every day and taking pills all the time and you can, you can die from this. This is really dangerous. And I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm sober now 12 years. I, I want to help you. And um, you know, with all, all the things that I knew, I didn't have enough tools to help him. Um, I was act- actively involved in a 12-step program and I just didn't have the tools to help my brother Jackson. So when he passed away in 2010, I had this idea that I'm going to open up a residential treatment center for adult men like Jeff. I didn't really act on it. Two years later, um, my best friend, Jerry, he's a, a local, he was a local physician here in Arizona. I sponsored him for five years and um, he reported to the Arizona Medical Board and every day he had to uh, do a random urine analysis. And if he came out positive, he would lose his license. So for five years, he um, was clean and sober for five years. That monitoring program ended. He ended up drinking, taking pills and ended up uh, dying as a direct result from alcoholism. And that was in 2012. So, you know, emotionally went through that with my brother, Jeff, in 2010 went through that with my best friend, Jerry, in 2012. And at that point, I thought I really want to do something to help people. And at that point in 2012, I was over 14 years and still didn't have the tools. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna assemble the best medical team and clinical team and holistic team and open up a treatment center to help men like my brother, Jeff, and my best friend, Jerry. And so I went on this quest and I started touring treatment centers all over the country. And um, I would ask friends in recovery, you know, what was it that, it helped you when you were in treatment? You know, what, what, what was that magic answer? What was the magic thing that happened to help you realize you had a problem and you wanted to help and get you on that road to recovery? And I took notes for years and toured places for years. And then um, in 2016, uh, acquired a property here um, in Cave Creek, Arizona. Beautiful property, five acres all fenced in and uh, fought real hard for a year to, to get a special use permit to use that property for its designated purposes. And um, so where was I? I was at this place now where I had this experience with recovery. I had experience running a hotel. So I thought, okay, there's some skills from the hotel management that might apply to running a treatment center. I had this experience running a, an executive search firm for 20 years. So I thought, okay, I can hire the A-team for my executive search recruiting skills. And um, with the magic, I do presentations for, for groups and I try to use magical effects to underline some of the points that I'm trying to make in a presentation. So anyway, um, combine those skills and then um, we opened up this treatment center. Um, it was a, a big, big gamble. Um, I was doing very well financially before this. I had an executive search recruiting firm that was very successful for 20 years and that business is still on the side. But I <laughs> took a real big risk and, um, and it's, it's real challenging the first year, but we've just started our second year. And um, so it's kind of a long answer about where was I before, but um, before I was in several different careers, <laughs> executive search, hotel management. Um, and emotionally I was, you know, before getting sober, it was not in a good place, but, uh, but now I'm grateful to say that uh, emotionally in a good place now. Right. Well, there's gotta be something fulfilling about that. You know, uh, having a brother who passed away, having a best friend who passed away, going out, taking a risk and, and trying to make this right. I mean, it's gotta be fulfilling now, uh, for you looking back, you know, to say this is a completely different career that you probably never saw yourself would be in, but now due to the circumstances, you know, you're doing something about it. You're stepping up in a position like that. Um, and for people listening out there, it, you know, it's, it's rare nowadays that, 
you don't know someone who is affected by addiction or uh, dependence. Uh, and those are two terms that are different. I think addiction is a lot different than dependence. Um, but it, I'm curious about for you, what is different about Soberman's estate than the others that say your brother wouldn't want to go into? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people, I think you mentioned the 12 step program. A lot of people, for instance, my brother hated the 12 step program. Didn't want to go to places that were going to give him a solution before he even walked in the door and understood who he was as a person. Um, so what's really the, the unique, I don't want to say the unique value proposition as to business term, but let's just say what, what separates or what's different about the sober man's estate than versus is, say another inpatient uh, recovery facility. Great question. Kevin. So I'll give you a, a real life story that happened about three, four years ago. Sure. I had a friend who uh, I drove to detox uh, here in the Phoenix area. Dropped him. He was heavily under, under the influence of alcohol. And if someone stops drinking alcohol right away, it could be dangerous. So I dropped him off at a, at a detox center. I got a call from him about five days later that he was in a treatment center. So I went to visit him. He was uh, about 50 years old at the time. And he said, Mitch, look around. I said, what? He said, he said, Mitch, everyone in here is about 18 to about 25, maybe 30 years old. He goes, I'm 50. I'm 20 years older than the, everyone, everyone else in here. And there's about 40 people in this treatment center. He said, Mitch, I don't even know the names of the drugs these people are doing here. So he was a fish out of water. He was like the one out of 40 guys, men and women, at this facility that just didn't fit in. Um, a lot of the other treatment centers, um, cater to that bracket, um, that age group, 18 to 20, 18 to 30 or so. So he was the fish out of water. Jeff was uh, 49 years old. Um, Jerry was about the same age, 47 years old. Um, another real life example is I do go to 12-step meetings. My Wednesday 7 p.m. men's group has about 80 men that show up every Wednesday. And each Wednesday, about three bands pull in. And there's typically about 25 men that are in treatment at another treatment facility. And out of those 25 men, one of them is in, in their 50s or 60s or 70s, and the rest of them are all about 30 or younger. So Silverman's was, estate was designed for an adult man, 30 and up. So it's not uncommon for us to have men there that are 60s and 70s. And, and most of them are alcohol or um, opiates or, or benzos. Um, so it's, it's a, that's what's unique about it is we cater to just men and just adults. Um, People say, how come you're excluding women? Well, if we're, we're very small. Another big differentiator is that um, we have currently five beds. So um, we've, got, we've reached the point now where there has been a waiting list. But, but by design, we wanted it to be small. We wanted it to be men only. We find that in a group setting, when there's a group of men sitting together, that the sharing could be much more in-depth mm -hmm. and much more meaningful when they're not distracted by having... Um, women in the same room with, with the men who are revealing new deep emotional thoughts. So we only cater to men, only cater to adults. And uh, it's very, very private. So if there's one differentiator for us, we're five acres fenced in, surrounded by the Bureau of Land Management protected land. And um, so it's very, we're surrounded by hundreds of acres of beautiful Sonoran desert. And so it's, it's different for us as confidential and adult men. Well, and, and for people listening to this as well, you know, it, I think the stat is, it's like, 
those who have done uh, or were in substance abuse or alcohol de- uh, dependence like are 60% likely to go back or relapse um, after you know some time um, and it, so it's uh, like the doctors that have come on our show have always recommended you know people just need uh you know a support system so what do do you do anything for the members who leave the recovery system and how do you make sure that they are sticking to a life of sobriety great question kevin so um i i do believe that no matter how great any one residential treatment center is it's only a link in the chain and you're right that there has to be a continuum of care and so at soberman's estate from day one, we start working on the continuum of care plan. And most of our clients stay 35 days. At the end of 35 days, we do not do what most places do and call it a graduation ceremony. No, we call it a commencement stone ceremony. We use the word commencement as opposed to graduation because we tell the clients from the first week they're there, mm-hmm. that this is a lifetime program of recovery. And so when they leave, they get a commencement stone, a commencement stone ceremony meaning that they're gonna begin, then comes the hard work. So every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday night, they're welcome, the ones that are local are welcome to come back into the estate for the alumni meeting. And the ones that are out of state, some of them are far away as Japan, Washington, Florida, New York, they can, on a uh, video conference call that's uh, secure, they come in and we do an alumni meeting. So we've got a very strong alumni. The men that have stayed with us are just fans and they're just, they're so grateful to be in recovery. So, but. So we keep in contact with them regularly, as often as three times a week. We're in touch with our alumni. So I've heard um, it explained to me that when you when someone goes cold turkey or someone stops uh, using alcohol, that's really where you begin. Like that's that's really the one. It's like the easiest part is to stop, but the most difficult thing to do now is to continue that sobriety uh, for a culture that is nowadays, especially my generation, for my age group, is built around a lot of you know social activities. Um, so, what are some keys maybe for people listening to this? For people that have um, friends and family members affected by um, substance abuse or alcohol dependence, dependency, uh, what are some things that maybe they should be keeping in mind while they have a friend or family member like this? Good question, Kevin. So I think it's good to keep in mind that if you have a family member that you think has an addiction problem, addiction is a disease, just like diabetes is a disease. So if someone was diabetic, we wouldn't say, oh, he's such a bad person. He's diabetic. We would say, oh, he's a sick person that needs to get well. We look, we, that's how we look at addiction. This is not a bad person who's an addict who has to become good. No, it's a sick person who has to become well. So just like there's no cure for diabetes, a diabetic is going to have to take insulin for the rest of their lives. But they can live a, live a good, healthy, enjoyable life as long as they're taking their insulin every day. Mm-hmm. So with, with an, an addict, if they go to a residential treatment center and learn what their insulin is, they could take these principles, these practices, these tools, and use those on a daily basis for the rest of their lives to, to live a good, enjoyable life. So there's no cure for alcoholism or addiction, but they could be recovered, meaning they won't experience those unpleasant symptoms, the cravings, the obsessions, the hangovers, and so forth. That, that, all, that, all that can stop. So with what the family can keep in mind is, is that you know, it, it, it is a disease. 
and there is help available. I would ask the uh, person two questions. If it was my father, my brother, my uncle, whoever, any loved one, I would ask them two questions. Do you think you have a problem? And if they say yes, that's great because they're not in denial anymore. Mm. And the next question I would say is, do you want help? And if they say yes, that's great because uh, there is help available. But um, a symptom of addiction is, is denial. And so many times people are an alcoholic or an addict and they're in deep, deep denial. And, and what I would recommend to the family, family members at that point would be to seek their own help, um, to go to a therapist. And there's actually support groups for people who are worried about addicts and alcoholics. And it's called Al-Anon. And basically support groups for them to realize there may not be a whole lot to do until that person says, I've got a problem and I want help. Right. Yeah. Very well put. Very good advice as well. Uh, you, you mentioned something though. You said addiction is a disease and I've been like struggling with this one a little bit. So I'm, I'm really open to, I want to hear your point of view of this because addiction to me is a, a compulsive, a repetitive compulsive use of a substance to, despite adverse consequences. So like I could be addicted to eating apples, um, but it's not going to make me want to go rob a store. It's not going to make me lie to my family members about where I'm getting money from to go purchase some more apples. Um, I could be addicted to my phone um, and that people are addicted to their phones, um, but it's not going to cause them to, uh, you know, again, go to um, a store without telling somebody else and, and buy liquor from it. Um, it's not going to um, you know, affect their their uh, their lungs like bronchitis, like a, a disease like that. How do you because I'm, I'm trying to avoid like a reductionist society view of addiction is always a bad thing, whereas substance abuse and substance dependence is uh, very different uh, from from addiction, in my opinion. How do you look at addiction as, as a disease and maybe expand on that a little bit more? Certainly. So say someone has an allergy. Say, Kevin, are you allergic to anything? Are you allergic I'm to- not. No. Okay. Do you know something? You know, someone who has an allergy, maybe to strawberries. Uh, my or- brother's allergic to penicillin. Okay, penicillin. Okay, penicillin is, is a medication. It's probably easier for him to, to avoid that. Say peanuts. Um, okay, peanuts. Okay, exactly. So say that, say that um, you were allergic to peanuts, right? So an allergy would be an abnormal reaction, right? So if I eat peanuts, my reaction is, mm, they're good, I'll have another one. If you eat peanuts and you're allergic, your reaction would be your throat blows up. You have to go to the hospital. So you're, so, so therefore if we start off with that, that mm. allergy is an abnormal reaction, right? So then your question is, is disease a, excuse me, an addiction of disease. And I would say, let's, let's relate that to the allergy. Okay. So addiction I'd say is affects the mind and the body. So if you have a drink of alcohol and you have, you may not finish the one glass of wine or you, you might start feeling it and, and stop. Okay. That's the normal reaction to alcohol. If you go to a wedding and there's 10 people at the table and there's nine people there that may or may not finish their glass of wine, they might start feeling tipsy and they'll stop. That's the normal reaction to alcohol. The person who has an allergic reaction or an abnormal reaction to alcohol, they drink one, all bets are off. They may drink, 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 drink until they're in a blackout and passing out and not remembering what happened the night before. So they have an abnormal reaction. So that in itself, so that's the actual physical part, that it's an abnormal reaction physically, which would, would not, that's not the main problem with this though. So 
for example, if I know that I'm an alcoholic and I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol, I would just never drink again. If you have an abnormal reaction to peanuts, you say, okay, I'm just never going to eat peanuts because it's the physical reaction. The problem with addiction is it's not just about the physical body. It's about the emotion, the behavioral health, mental health issue of it. There's a little voice in the addict's head that says, it's okay to have another drink. So that mm-hmm. compulsion to have the, the first drink. So it's about the body and the mind. The mind will say, even though the body knows, I'm going to have an, I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. If I drink, all bets are off. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The addict or the alcoholic's mind will say, it's okay. It's okay, Mitch. Mm-hmm. You can have another drink. That voice will still come. So therefore, it's the mind and the body. So when I say it's, it's a disease, that's why, because it affects the mind and the body of an alcoholic or an addict. Does that, does that say, am I saying that there's never someone who's chemically dependent? No. There's a lot of medications out there where someone could become chemically dependent pretty quick and they'd have to be tapered off, tapered off and maybe they're not, a, not an addict. Um, I think one of the, uh, the guidelines to look at would be if you say to me, well, does some, does such and such have a addiction problem or an alcohol problem? I would say, well, can they control it and enjoy it? at the same time. And if they can control it and enjoy it, great, then they don't have a problem. And if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. If you ask an alcoholic, can you control it and enjoy it? And they were really honest, they would say, well, if I controlled it and didn't drink so much, I would not enjoy it. Hmm. And if I enjoyed it, I would be out of control and there could be negative consequences. So an addict or alcoholic would have a real hard time controlling and enjoying it. So are there people out there that can uh, smoke marijuana, um, or drink alcohol, or maybe even use some other drug socially, they might be able to control it and enjoy it, and it's not a problem for them. But an addict or alcoholic, I would say, has a disease. They're wired a little bit differently. And once they introduce that mind-altering substance into their body, then they're going to react differently. They're going to have an abnormal reaction. It sets, sets off a, a mental obsession. It's going to just make them not deal with that obsession and going to use their drug or drink. I really like that allergy example, that allergy analogy. That makes so much more sense. And it's also like an allergy can be predisposed too as well. And so I like I've heard addiction, like you're more predisposed if you have say like alcoholism in your family or anything like that. Um, and which also they just brings out the question is if I am already predisposed to being more adept to take uh, a few more drinks of alcohol, um, so let's just say my behavior change is going to be a lot more difficult than, say, another person who hasn't had al- al- alcoholism in their family. What are some ways you work with those patients at this facility to change their behavior, to change the the synapses who are, are begging them to to take another sip? Uh, what, do, what do you do and what are some of the results that you've seen from Sobermans? Okay, that's a very good question too. So, you know, the, 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 the few years of development of Sobermans Estate, that's the exact question I had. Like, what can I do to help these men? Like I lost, I knew so much about 12-step work, but it wasn't enough to save my brother's life, Jeff, and it wasn't enough to save Jerry's life, my best friend, Jerry. So when I opened up Sobermans Estate, my state licensed behavioral health residential treatment center. I wanted to make sure that we had every possible tool that can, that can help people recover. So we basically have three main categories. We have um, medical, clinical, and holistic. So we have mm. two addiction psychiatrists. So 
each client that comes in gets a comprehensive evaluation and diagnosis. They speak with a psychologist. They speak with a licensed professional counselor. They speak with a registered nurse. And they, we understand them medically first. Hmm. And then clinically, we, uh, they, they speak with a, um, a therapist, psychologist, psych, psych, psychiatrist, so forth. And um, so medically and clinically. And then there's a lot of holistic pro- approaches. Sometimes it takes um, a patient or a client um, several weeks just to where they're starting to sleep normally, eat normally, and um, for the, what we call the fog to lift so they can start participating more in one-on-one, ther- one-on-one therapy and group therapy. So um, s- some of the modalities may, may sound you know, so, so interesting, um, but at the estate, everything was designed with therapy in, in mind. So for example, when I was touring other treatment centers, um, I said to uh, this man that was, that was there, you know, where did the magic happen for you? He said, well, I can't explain it, but I was, uh, I was walking through this labyrinth and I got to the center of it and it just, the light bulb went off. I've got a problem and I want help. That's, that was the exact answer I was looking for because I know that when someone reaches that point, we have the other tools to help them. So that, that's a big part of the battle. So, so we had this exact replica of a labyrinth at Sorbonne's estate from Chartres, France. It takes about 15 minutes to walk to the center. In the center, we've got a huge saguaro cactus. So that's a therapeutic modality. We also have um, an equine uh, facility right on, on site where we have a big arena and horse stalls and we do equine therapy. Some clients think that's might be where the magic happens. We've got um, a big fire pit where we have a therapist will come in and do, do ceremonies, play some guitar, maybe write down some things the clients want to get rid of them and they'll burn them. We have a putting green and a resort pool. So we, we look at treatment as, um, as a gift, not a punishment. Again, these are not bad people who need to be uh, punished. They're good people that need to get well. So when they come into treatment, we look at it like a gift. This is time for them to be selfish and to avail themselves of all these treatment modalities that you speak of. It could be um, the Reiki, it could be the physical exercise. We have a, an NFL football coach who comes in three times a week and does physical fitness. We have two different yoga instructors that come in every week to do yoga. We have a dietitian and nutritionist who created the menu with our executive chef. So our executive chef, this kind of goes to some of the sustainability issues. We, um, our executive chef is in the process now of getting uh, live chickens and live goats and an orchard and garden to table, um, gardens to do uh, farm to table dining. So, we do, so healthy eating is super important. Um, some of the basics that so right. an alcoholic might forget over, over years. Right. Like what's, what's going to change the brain chemistry? What's going to create the, the high amounts of rewards for these patients? And I really enjoyed that you have taken the time to implement a, a holistic approach for uh, your patients, whether that's a, you know, a bio, psycho, social, um, spiritual and, and nutritional way with the chefs. I mean, that's, that, that's just very impressing. And, uh, um, and it's it's difficult for the average day, uh, the everyday family to have someone that is going is one of those kids is one of those uh, young, younger uh, adults uh, who doesn't want to have um, someone come in and give them, uh, you know, one size fit all solution before they even write down their name. Uh, so it's very nice that you've had something like that. Now, these these people you've had a, a major impact on, Mitch, but how have these guests really impacted you? Well, that's, that's a great question. How they impact me? Well, the, the big joys I get is um, 
when when they'll call or text me afterwards. It's it's bittersweet when when we have the commencement stone ceremony. They uh they make a they they decorate a big stone and they leave it by the saguaro cactus at the center of the labyrinth. And so I see these stones and it reminds me of, of when they're there, when they were there. And it's bittersweet when they when they go through their commencement and they're not staying with us. And so um, it, it moves me to keep in touch with them. And, to, to, when, and when I speak with family members, I get uh, calls, uh, emails, or texts from, from the loved ones that say, thank you so much. You know, you saved my dad's life. You saved my uncle's life. And and that is like, that, that's what we're there for. We're really there just to help, you know, be a part of saving someone's life. I mean, you know, everyone talks about, um, now it's all about the coronavirus, which is awful, awful, awful. Uh, but the opioid crisis is still going on. And with the opioid crisis, it's about 170 people, I think, so far. Excuse me, 170 people die in the U.S. alone every day from the opiate ec- epidemic. With alcoholism, it's about 242 every single day that die from the alcohol epidemic. So people are dying every single day in this country. Again, 240 plus from alcohol every day. 170 plus from opiates every day. So how does it affect me? Gosh, I can't save all those people. But Because when I see those numbers, I don't think of big numbers. I think of my brother, Jeff, my best, my best friend, Jerry. I know the people that have died. So, you know, when I see the men that, that leave Silverman's estate, when they become alumni. So I don't know long about it, round, a long roundabout answer. I guess it's when I see them come to the alumni meetings and I hear what their families have to say or their kids, you know, that that's, that's really the best because it does ripple out, you know, because obviously everyone that that addict isn't in, in their addict's life or the alcoholic's life when they're helped out it's it, they're, that circle of influence grows and grows it's it's their you know, it's their immediate family and their extended family and their friends and their employers and their community they become and we cater to licensed professionals so uh, doctors dentists airline pilots lawyers uh these men who are about to lose their license and they're not working often when they come to us so hmm. It's great, great for us to know that these men are now back in their careers, really helping the community. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk about impact. I mean, that's that's incredible. I mean, this is just the stories that you just don't get to hear every single day. And I think you made a really interesting point there, uh, drawing the parallel between the opioid crisis and now the current COVID-19 crisis. Um, and that's a total, totally you know, fair um, presumption right there. I mean all of 2019 we were focused on uh, the opioid crisis uh, at least we were I, I joined an opioid crisis working group we've got tons of players and enterprises focused on um, you know reducing and, and helping out the continuum of, of care for people listening to this it's um, pre-exposure exposure dependence withdrawal uh, overdose um, in recovery and out of recovery treatment as well so where in the continuum of care can you help that's what we were focused on but right now all the efforts are kind of focused on, you know, taking care of this virus that's going around. Do you think this is going to hurt the opioid crisis in any way or, or help it? No, I, I think, well, I can just tell you in our experience, just in the last couple of weeks, um, we've had clients that have been thinking about coming into treatment for months and months and months. And, uh, and now they're in treatment. This has mm. put them over the edge because um, we are a dual diagnosis licensed residential treatment center, meaning that we treat the underlying and co-occurring disorders, meaning that we treat anxiety, depression, and stress. So those underlying issues are often very common. Well, stirring what's happening happening now globally, it's uh, it's testing 
everyone. The, the people who are very emotionally well-balanced are having very difficult times now. So for the addicts and alcoholics, those that were suffering from, from substance use disorder, they were masking their, their, their disease with um, their drug of choice, but they were already suffering likely from anxiety, depression, excuse me, stress. So this has pushed people over the edge. Hmm. So um, yeah, yeah, we're actually, a number of the clients that are there right now basically said they were thinking about coming to treatment for months and months and months. And this was the final straw that said, I need help because of this. So I think it might help, you know, I, huh. I, never, I, never, I never want anyone to, you know, if I say hit a bottom, I don't actually, I don't even actually use that term. I say uh, it's a gift of desperation when someone, because the bottom is Jerry and the bottom is Jeff, they die. Most people die of this opiates or die of alcoholism. So I'd say whenever they wake up, you know, the elevator's going down, they can get off whenever they want and hopefully they get off before they die. When they get off, they hit that gift of desperation. So I think this COVID-19 might help people get that gift of desperation earlier. Uh. It's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I would have thought, um, you know, a lot of the funding would have been directed more toward, toward you know, a COVID-19 crisis. And, uh, you know, like think about like hospital beds. I think there was a Harvard Business Study report. It's like 924,000 beds uh, or, or hospital beds are available right now in the United States. And we're going to need like three to four million by mid-May, uh, which is a staggering number if you think about it. Um, so how do people step up? Where are the investments? What's the business community going to do to help out uh, not just American citizens, but the entire world uh, that could potentially be affected by this? Um, so I was just curious about that question. That's really good to hear, though, that a lot of people are you know, just having like, hey, this is a great time. I need to go in, get some treatment, get some help. I, I, I can't be at home right now. And uh, it's just it's really good to hear. And I hope that's uh, manifesting everywhere, you know, not even around the United States, but around the world. Um, but Mitch, you know, you just got over talking about how this has really impacted you, seeing the alumni, seeing the impact that's had, uh, you know, in not only the people that have come through Sobermans, but are now influencing their own uh, communities. Um, what would you say the leadership qualities uh, of someone that um, uh, say someone to operate a facility like yours to understand um, the impact that you can have uh, in a community? What would you say the leadership qualities um, uh, are? What, what are the leadership qualities that you possess, and what are the leadership qualities that I think are needed to operate a facility like this? A very good question, too. A long-winded uh, question. No, it's a good question about the leadership qualities. Basically, um, you know, are, are leaders born or they, are they made? Um, you know, I, I look back and see, uh, you know, as a kid in kindergarten or first grade, the teacher might say, follow the leader. And they just choose someone to be the leader, and, and, they're, the, and they're the leader. Um, and some children are comfortable with that and some are not. And does everyone want to be a leader? I think at a certain age, they don't. Um, so in, in my experience, um, you know, growing up, or I've, I've naturally been into, into that position where we'd be on a, uh, on a retreat for a weekend or something with a bunch of families and be 40, 50 people. And what are we going to do next? Well, I find myself organizing the, uh, the talent show or find myself organizing the, uh, the card night or coming up with the next activity. So was I elected leader? No. Do I want to do that? Yes. So I think the idea of someone who just naturally has an idea that they, they want to be a leader um, in this particular field, 
um, I think it's fair, like in most fields, that um, a leader would be a, a, a trusted, a trusted servant, um, a steward. So I look at myself in that capacity that um, I, I tell my team, you look out at the swallow cactus in the middle, at the center of the, of the labyrinth. And I said, that cactus was here before I was here. It'll be here after I was here. I get to be the steward of, of that cactus uh, mm. for, for a short time period. And um, so as a leader, I'm there to you know, protect what's there right now, but also to be the visionary and and to determine what, what the future is going to bring for, for our industry. Um, I think trustworthiness is key. And, um, and I, I apologize for the phone in the background. That was not. It's all good. No, okay. Um, get it. Okay. So um, honesty. And then I think the idea is that um, being a, a mentor and a, uh, and a coach is important as well. So the idea, I, I tell my managers of the different departments at the estate, look, if you're having a day off, it should run as if you were there. Train the people that you work with to make sure the operation is running smoothly. So if you're there, not there for the day, everything runs smoothly. So um, I think that's important too, to empower, to coach, to mentor. Um, and as far as being able to... Uh, See, see what's happening next and to be able to make changes that are happening next. Um, aside from Soberman's estate, um, I see what's happening now for the, we talked about the continuum of care. Mm-hmm. So I think, and now we're talking about leadership. So a leader has to determine what do people need to recover? So the gold standard has been support groups around the world. Um, they're readily like the 12-step groups. They're what I would call the the freest, most available support groups around the globe. But um, that has stopped almost immediately. So now people are not going to these support groups because it's not healthy to. We don't want to spread the COVID-19. So as, as a leader, I've, and that, this is not for Silverman's estate, but just to help people in recovery. So I actually, next week, we'll have a, a new website that's separate from Silverman's estate, and it's going to be called online. 12stepmeetings.com and it'll just only be a directory for virtual meeting because so I think the idea is that you know as a leader someone's got to put together a directory where someone, everyone can look because I've gotten maybe 15 calls in the last two three weeks saying hey where's some virtual meetings where's some virtual meetings is our Monday group going to go virtual is our Wednesday group going to go virtual and then who's doing it so mm. I found myself putting together a virtual meeting yesterday and I found myself um watching this new website just for virtual meetings. So I think a leader's got to be able to do that too, to find what the need is and take the resources they have available and, and meet that need to help more people. So, and, and know what the goal is. What's, what's the target? What's our goal? If our goal is to help people recover. Let's give them those tools to recover. Mitch, you've thrown around this, <laughs> this labyrinth a lot, yeah. and I'm really intrigued by um, what you deem this represents in life. Like, for instance, right now, people are feeling stuck inside in homes. They can't move no matter where they go. They might find themselves back in the same spot, back in where they were yesterday and four weeks ago when the quarantine started to begin what does the labyrinth in life mean to you and what's the secret to getting to the middle it's a great question i think it was the first or second client that we had after we opened up he he walked into 
he was going through his admission process and he was demanding a Xanax. He said, I, I need a Xanax, I need a Xanax. And he was just so uptight. So he was told, go take a walk on the path. And typically, typically we would say, go have a meditation on the labyrinth. But we did not say meditate. We did not say labyrinth. We said, go take a walk on the path. So the, the labyrinth takes about 15 minutes to walk through. There's about 34 turns. And so about 20 minutes, 25 minutes goes by. We're like, what happened to this man? What happened to Dave? It's been like almost a half hour. Where did he go? Is he okay? So we walk up to the center of the labyrinth and go to talk to him. He completely forgot about the Xanax. So the idea is that it changed his perspective from being ridden with anxiety and fear and depression. And he got to the center and uh, forgot about that. He was just concentrating on walking one step in front of the other and not getting, uh, not going off the path. The labyrinth is made of stones, so there's no walls. Hmm. It's not like you're walking through a cornfield where you can't see. These stones are not even, are about, they're about ankle high, so you can easily step off and see the whole thing. But he's walking through the whole, whole path, and it's basically it's meditation. So we cannot control what's going on in the world right now. Those are external factors going on in the universe that we can't control. What we can control is our own perspective. So we try to rise above that noise and, and change the things that we can control, our own attitude, our own perspective. So meditation is one of the things we teach. We teach mindfulness, we teach meditation, and the labyrinth is an easy way to get into that because all the person is thinking about is taking one step and following the path. If they don't look down and see their feet once in a while, they're gonna, they won't follow the, the turns. And so I think the answer would be it represents meditation, it represents mindfulness, and it represents trying to get the men, in our case men, to focus on, on one thing. So when they walk through, we might say to them, focus on something you'd like to get today, like hmm. gratitude. So each time you make one of those 34 turns, just remember, I'm going to be grateful. So they start walking through and their mind is filled with, oh, there's blue skies, there's clouds up there, there's birds, whatever their mind starts filling, we just remind them, just get back to being mindful, just think about one thing, I want to be in gratitude. And they remind themselves of that 34 times. By the time they get to the center, they're not thinking about the COVID-19 or the outside world. Hmm. Um, so, and we also, and we also, we also teach them there that, uh, to live in the day. So today they, they've got food in their stomach, they got a roof over their head, they got someone to talk to. Everything's okay today. We try to remove that fear. We don't bury our head in the sand. We let we, we have the TV on maybe a half hour a day. So we, we all know what's going on in the world. They talk to their families every day. They know what's going on, but they're in a safe place. Um, they see that every car that comes to our gates is approached by a team member who has a mask on, who has a thermometer in hand. We go through a list of questions. We take their temperature. If they have a temperature, if they fail to answer the questions properly, they go right around through the gates and they don't, they don't get out of their vehicle. So they're, they know that they're in a safe place. Um, and then another thing about the labyrinth is um, sometimes when they're at the center, if there's something they want to release, they do the same idea as they walk back through the labyrinth 15 minutes or so through those 34 turns and release whatever they're trying to get rid of. Maybe they're going to release that anxiety and just focus on, on one thing at a time. I, I love that. 
I love that, you know, cause like I said before, people are stuck, you know, they're, they're, they're not living in the moment. They're stuck with what's in front of them. They're not looking inside, which I think is such, you know, a great metaphor for how people can rethink during this time of great reset when things are changing. I think people are beginning to kind of uh, fully realize what's important um, and and how they want to move forward is is something that uh, you know a leader can change. So, Mitch, the last question I have for you to bring this full circle is: What is your definition of a real leader? My definition of a real leader would be a um, the leader, by definition, I would believe has to have followers and followers would uh, want to. So what's going to make a follower want to follow a leader? So they're going to want to follow someone who has attributes that they want to have themselves. I would say that they're honest, that they're patient, that they're tolerant, that they're loving, that they're accepting that they're also courageous and that they're persistent. So when, and, um, so, so there's so many factors for that, but basically, um, a leader, someone that they can trust, that's going to lead the way for them. You know, if, we're, if we're out on a path and, and, um, we're experiencing new things, how are we going to, uh, is our leader going to be the fearless leader that's not going to get us lost or hurt? And, um, Definitely. I'll tell you what, what I'd like to do is ask you that question. You probably ask that question to a lot of people. I don't might put you on the spot. But well, <laughs> thank you for asking, Mitch. You're the first guest of the 500 interviews I've ever asked me what my definition of a realtor is. So I appreciate you for doing that. And I'll tell you what my definition of a realtor okay. is. I think a realtor is someone that can connect with a bunch of different people on a bunch of different levels. And then inherently, when a bunch of people are connected on a bunch of different levels, well, you have a movement. And that's what I think a real leader is. It's not a person. It's not a quality. It's just connections and that connections that catalyzes that movement. That's what I really think a real leader is. And that's what I think we're trying to do here in the show. And so we appreciate you coming on to, to add to that movement, to add to that connection uh, and continue your impact uh, in society. So I just want to thank you for your time today here on the Real Leaders Podcast. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's my pleasure. And uh, just a final note that if, if there's someone out there suffering from addiction and they want help, there is help available. Is it okay if I give my phone number? It's Got it. 480-595-2222. And our website is www.sobermansestate.com. It's been an honor and pleasure to talk with you today, Kevin. You're doing great work, and thanks for educating me. Someone has asked that question hundreds hundreds of times. You've got, you've got the great answer. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Of course. Well, we'll make sure to put that number and um, website on the info so people listening on this on audio go to the description. You can click on the link um, or uh, give Mitch a ring at that number right there. Um, for everyone listening out there, for, for Mitch Prager, I'm Kevin Edwards. Asking to go out there. Be courageous. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you. Keep on keeping on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. Just want to say really quick, if there's, we got two things for you really quick. One, if you know someone in need, someone that's struggling with their sobriety right now, or you see that's going down the hole, make sure they give that number a call or just research online a place that they can go to someone that they can talk to. It is very important. We do not let this slide as I've had multiple people in my family, multiple people in my friend circle 
who have had the same struggles. It's very important that you continue to support them and be there for them in a time of need. Now, two, if you are a loyal listener, and I know you are, all I ask today is that you just simply leave us a review. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcasts, please hit the channel, scroll down to the bottom, and leave us a review. Let us know what you like about the podcast and how we can improve. All right, folks, that's it for me. Thanks for tuning in today and stay tuned for the next episode.